0: Hey everyone, you're listening to Conversations at the Washington Library. I'm Jim Ambuski. I recently popped down to the office of Jordan Pellerito. Jordan is a first year PhD student at the University of Missouri, and this summer she's serving as an intern at the library. I wanted to understand why she wanted to study professional history. And as you'll hear, she didn't really like history as a child, or even as a younger student. But over time, she became excited by the challenge of answering those big why questions and finding ways to make history more accessible to a wider audience. She even went looking for the Marquis de Lafayette in the early Republic as part of her master's thesis. At the library this summer, she's working with our collection of rare books and doing some research on the chambers of commerce in the early United States. And I think you'll enjoy our conversation. So Jordan, welcome to the podcast. What brings you to Mount Vernon for the summer?
1: So, this is my third summer in DC. Um, the past few years, I've been a teaching assistant residence for a Mizzou program with the Kinder Institute, where 20 undergraduate students come out here for the summer and intern normally at places around the capital. And I thought that I would do my own internship this summer.
0: Very cool. And so, where are you coming from?
1: Coming from University of Missouri, I've been in Columbia for the past six years or so, um, but I'm originally from the St. Louis, Missouri area.
0: Okay, yeah. So you evidently fall down on the Missouri instead of Missouri. Yes. Um, what, what's the what's the distinguishing factor between those who say Missouri and Missouri?
1: Um, it seems to be a difference of urban and rural Missourians. Mm-hmm. If you're from a city or a more populated area, you say Missouri, and it's actually a lot of people from out of the state who tend to ask you if it's Missouri or Missouri. Oh. So I'm not sure if it's like some sort of stigma or myth that we have, but it's <laughs> a, it's mostly people from out of the state who ask about it. It's like
0: Cincinnati and Cincinnati. Yeah. And something like that as well. Uh, and, and where are you in your educational career?
1: Just finished my master's degree in history in May this past year. So I'll be a first year PhD student. In... History. In history, and, yep.
0: very good. That's what we like around here. And what was your MA studies on?
1: Did my MA on around the Jacksonian period, the 1820s, mm-hmm. um, in the early Republic, and so I looked at celebrity culture and memory of the American Revolution, specifically the Marquis de Lafayette's oh, final tour.
0: Cool. So tell me more about that. What did you learn over the course of your research?
1: So my. My big research question was looking at how marginalized communities like African Americans and Native Americans received Lafayette, because I knew from the existing literature that white communities received him um, and celebrated him for the year and a half or so that he was here. And I was interested in how his visit fell coincidentally at the 50th anniversary of the American Revolution Mm -hmm. and right at the change of really the first generation of Americans dying and this new generation taking over, and how the people of color in the 1820s received him, if they also celebrated him, or if they more saw him as a means to achieving their own goals um, politically. So equality, um, citizenship, things of that nature.
0: Now, I don't want to come back to your findings, but how did how did you get on that topic in the first place?
1: I became fascinated with Lafayette a few years ago, I guess. And when I started my master's, I really tried to stay away from Lafayette. I didn't want to do something with him. Um, <laughs> I really was trying to stay away from like a great man narrative. Mm-hmm. And I think I did, I think I did that um, with the final product. But so it took me a while to figure out what I actually wanted to do. And eventually I just gave in and figured out something to do with Lafayette. And I think it was a perfect combination of getting to do research on him, but also... Um, this new generation of Americans in the 1820s that I've always been really fascinated with.
0: So you were trying to find ways to resist what had been done before and what, uh, you know, as you say, the, I think the, the phrase you used, the great white man narrative. Um, yeah. Sometimes it's also known as the founder's chic. Mm-hmm. Um, but finding ways to bring a, a new and refreshing take on someone who was critical to the American Revolution and the sense of American identity, but uh, perhaps not all, to all peoples involved. Right. So, so tell us the story that you told in the. In the you know, just just g- give it all away right here. Tell us, tell us the thesis. <laughs>
1: so, uh, from my research, it seemed that African Americans overwhelmingly celebrated Lafayette um, along the same lines as white Americans. It was more of how they got to encounter him because Mm -hmm. they were often more often than not barred from attending the same events as the white Americans. And so it was a lot of examples of Lafayette meeting them on their own terms um, or stopping parades because he saw a former slave that he worked with in the revolution and publicly embracing him. So it was never African-Americans being welcomed to white events or attending the same events. It was always um, they found their own ways to see him um, and to express or like project their memories of the revolution onto Mm -hmm. him. And Native Americans, I think, were more interesting in the sense that not many of them came to American events. It was almost always Lafayette going onto Native territories. So while he was traveling through the United States, he visited all 24 states in the Union in existence, and he had to travel through a lot of Indian territories to do so. And so, there was an instance that I thought was really fascinating where he, to get from Alabama to Georgia, I think it was, um, he and his delegation had to be given over to the Creek Nation mm-hmm. to do so, like the Alabama and the Georgia delegations couldn't transfer him without going through the Creeks, so right. I thought that was really interesting.
0: And, and what were the sources that you used to tell this story?
1: Um, so my main source would be the journal that his assistant kept mm-hmm. um, pretty much day by day. And so I got a lot of firsthand accounts from that. But I also had to take that with a grain of salt because it was kept by a white Frenchman um, who shared a lot of the same views as Lafayette, who we know now was, um, or I guess transformed into an anti-slavery advocate um, throughout his life and a friend of the Indian nations. But... So I had to take that with a grain of salt, and I really tried to use as many black and native voices as I Mm -hmm. could, but that was harder to do without traveling to a bunch of different archives. Mm -hmm.
0: So in some ways, you had to sort of read between the lines or read against the grain sometimes of this particular journal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And how did did that work inspire you to, to consider pursuing a Ph.D. program?
1: My master's program was tough. There was a while where I thought I didn't wanna do a PhD anymore. I mean, I came into the master's program with my, um, my future advisor when I was a senior in my undergrad. I remember the first thing he told me when I expressed interest in graduate school was that there's really not a lot of jobs right now. The market's not great. And I was like, well, this is what I'm interested in. This is what I wanna do anyway, so I'm gonna go for it. Did the master's, um, it was pretty hard. I think a lot of people think history is easy, and it's not. So there was a few months where I really wasn't sure what I was going to do.
0: Well, I'm curious. Could you describe the process by which you learned? As you say, history is hard. I mean, what what were your perceptions coming in, and then what were the skills that you had to learn to do the kind of work you wanted to do in your master's thesis?
1: I guess I didn't know what to expect from graduate work in history. I don't think. I was adequately prepared in undergrad for it, so it was a lot of um, nope. adjustment and <laughs> no one really shocked. is. Yeah. yeah, so and it was um, not having historiography and methods until my mm-hmm. second year of so the program really put me behind. I think, but um,
0: and historiography being the, the history of history, essentially right. how historians have written about the past before.
1: Right. So I think a lot of people just assume that history is memorizing dates or knowing just facts and being Mm -hmm. able to recite facts and that seems to be what a lot of undergraduates who I work with in undergraduate classes um, It's what they think it is Mm -hmm. and that's why I think they struggle sometimes Um, And throughout my own experience in the master's program Obviously, it's we both know it's not just dates and names. Mm -hmm. It's arguments and finding new evidence and filling in the gaps of what's been neglected for the past few hundred Mm years.
0: And and you know asking questions that are based off of you know what people have written before, but trying to find a way a new, a new entry point into it, or sometimes inspired by you know another uh, another project that makes you see something else differently. So how did you you know, you you said that you recognize that struggle in your own students, and so how did you or how have you tried to bring what you've learned about history being hard into the classroom so that students you know can have the same experience that you did a much richer experience yeah
1: um well I so I actually hated history throughout like high school and middle school because I thought I was learning the same thing over and Mm -hmm. over again it was facts and names
0: yeah they're all dead so who cares yeah
1: it was I just felt like I was getting the same course every year and so it wasn't until history classes in undergrad where I realized oh there's way more to this Mm -hmm. than before but it wasn't even until I started working with students that I realized if you emphasize that history is not just the dates and names, but you tell them, okay, write, you know, argue this point or this point or argue against this, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, write me a five paragraph essay for your midterm. That's an argument, it's not just a narrative. Then they seem to understand a lot more of what we do that we don't just sit around and memorize things that. It's an analysis, and it's finding evidence to support what you think happened.
0: Yeah, it's answering that big why question, yeah. right? Uh, I think that's, you put it terrifically, you know, it's marshalling evidence, marshalling past ideas, trying to, to answer that big overarching question you presented, which it sounds like in your own master's thesis, that's what you did yeah. as well, trying to answer the question of how people of color received Lafayette on his sort of grand tour of the United States in, in the 1820s. Um, so you had mentioned the fact that you had you had done some previous work with the Kinder Institute, and the, the Kinder Institute's a really important uh, institution at Mizzou, mm-hmm. um, University of Missouri. <laughs> um, but this year you wanted a little change of pace, and you said, okay, Mount Vernon sounds interesting so what what and, and you know for our listeners you and I started actually at the same time mm-hmm. we, we met in HR orientation so yep. <laughs> that was kind of fortuitous but I'm, I'm wondering you know what attracted you to the Washington Library what what did you um, what did you hope what do you hope to well we'll talk about what you hope to accomplish but first you know what what prompted you to say this this might be the place to spend the summer
1: I in the last few months became more interested in Public history than academic history. So I'm still doing my PhD on the academic Mm -hmm. track, but taking a real interest in the public history side of things. And I thought that working at, you know, one of the most popular public history sites in America would be a really fantastic opportunity. But it's also working behind the scenes of what the people see. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of what I work on is making documents or resources that people who may not be as familiar with history can understand. Mm-hmm. So if they walk into Washington's private collection, maybe the document that I made with his books can help them understand better what kind of books he had. And so it's not just you know sitting at a desk researching or giving tours maybe at the estate. It's more of the behind the scenes work of what it takes to really keep Washington's legacy alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and keep adding to that, but also making it accessible to more than just people who understand history.
0: So public history is, is simply going beyond the archival work and writing, but it's about making it accessible to uh, folks, um, yeah. which very much was, which Mount Vernon, as you rightly say, is a very public history type of institution. Um, one of the best ways, I think, that you know we can educate the public about the past is to bring them to these kinds of right. places. Mm-hmm. Um, what And so what are you working on so far? Um, You're an intern to Kevin Butterfield, who was our fearless leader. (laughs) Um, Actually, I'm going to cut that because I stumbled over those words. Um, You are currently working with Kevin Butterfield, who was the director here at the library. And so what kind of projects are you working on?
1: So I've only been here a few weeks, but I've worked on a few projects that I think Kevin thinks are boring to give to me, and I think he feels bad sometimes, (laughs) but I've actually found them very interesting, especially from the public history perspective. So um, one of the things I just talked about before was a document that hopefully will be available to visitors who go into the private Washington Library collection, and they can see um, all the books are already organized. You're talking about in
0: the in the vault. In the vault, yeah, in
1: yeah. the o the oval is what I've heard it's called. Well, the um, oval,
0: yes, the treasurer's room also is a good way to put it.
1: Yeah, where all the the fancy things you can't touch are.
0: Yeah,
1: um, and so I'm, I've been working on like a 700 row um, Excel sheet of all of the books they had, mm-hmm. and you know where they were published, what year they were published, um, what their subject was, and their very intricate titles that are often six sentences long. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: Welcome to the 17th and 18th century. Right. <laughs>
1: yeah. right, So I've been making an Excel sheet on that um, that I think I'll probably end up transforming into something that looks a little better than an Excel sheet so people can actually use it and I guess understand better and visualize better what George and Martha Washington were reading in their day and the books they kept and the current project I've been working on this week um, has been a history of the Chamber of Commerce in the United States, which has been fascinating because I did not know that Chambers of Commerce existed Uh-oh. in the 1700s, but they did.
0: They did. Well, let's, let's take each in turn for a second. So it sounds like then with the book project, you're kind of building a database yeah. of these texts. And, and what kind of things do you hope that we might be able to achieve by building this? I mean, where, where might that project lead?
1: I mean, there's already lists out there of what the Washingtons had in their library. Those are easy to find. A lot of the research that I've done and articles I've come across um, have those lists, and so it's not like I'm making the first comprehensive list of what's Mm -hmm. in the library. It's more of the interesting information, like where it was published, maybe how Washington got to it, um, if he wrote in it, like what he wrote in it, um, the merchant he bought it from, how long he had it like one of his books he borrowed from a neighbor as a boy and just never gave back to his neighbor so um it's like
0: the the story that came out a couple of years ago where i think he borrowed a book from the library in philadelphia and just didn't return it i mean that's one hell of a fine by this point right yeah
1: and i think it i mean that just kind of humanizes the washington's Mm -hmm. too to know those those quirky little facts like oh you know washington probably would have run up a late fine on his library card if he was around today (laughs) exactly (laughs)
0: Um, and so have you, I mean, I know you're just working from a kind of a catalog list at this point, but any sort of texts that strike you as particularly interesting at this point and makes you want to dive in more into it at at maybe a later date?
1: I shouldn't have been shocked, but I was at how many agriculture books um, he had. Uh, That seems to be a majority of the collection, but it's also a lot of British history and Roman history, um, which are, I I think, subjects I expected. Um, More interested, I think, in the fiction that they kept. There's really only Mm -hmm. a few fiction books and novels in the collection, Um, and those are harder to find descriptions of, actually, um, without actually going in and reading them. If you search their name in a database or online, it's actually really hard to figure out what they were about. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually interested more in looking at what kind of fiction Martha and George are reading. Mm-hmm.
0: What what kind of databases are you searching to find this information out of curiosity?
1: Oh, I've been using the Library of Congress, um, one of the Smith Library's databases. Um, Google Books has actually been a really big <laughs> resource, which is surprising. Um, they have
0: scanned a lot of material. Right. Indeed.
1: And JSTOR, of course.
0: JSTOR. And Trusty. And JSTOR for those for those listeners who might not be familiar is a, a kind of a central repository of, of published journal articles and books. Uh, very handy for doing re, uh, great research and whatnot. Um, so where where do you think this project ought to go? I mean, you, uh, yes, it, it it might have been different purposes from one that, that you intend. You know, you're assembling the database, but like if you were Kevin Butterfield, if you were the executive director, what would you want to do? With this list? What kind of projects can you imagine?
1: I guess as I've been working on it, if I, if it was under my complete discretion and I got to decide what happened to it, I would want a laminated binder that kind of stayed in the private library Mm -hmm. that people walking in um, could look and see, oh that's shelf 2 and there's book C, what is 2C, and go and look at the title and all of the information that comes with it, and so they can understand what's in the library, not just looking at a bunch of old mm-hmm. books that you probably can't even see the titles of. Um, so from my my perspective, I would want it to be something available to the public, um, but I think the projects that can contribute to are endless. Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, I guess it also seems like that would be a good way to, to prevent, you know, removing the actual book from the shelf right. and and handling it because you know these texts are can be delicate at times and so you know if you can quickly show someone a picture of the frontispiece right. or something cool inside that would be a a, a pretty good end game there
1: yeah preservation
0: <laughs> exactly yeah yeah we it took long enough to reassemble the collection or at least the, the one that we have we you know we don't want to blow it up right now yeah <laughs> so so tell me about the chamber of commerce Chambers of Commerce.
1: Chambers. Um, I think Kevin and I were both under the impression that they didn't exist in the Mm -hmm. 1700s. Um, And alas, I found the first one was in 1768, New York.
0: Really? That early?
1: Yeah. So I have been desperately looking for some correspondence from Washington Mm -hmm. about that and haven't had a ton of luck yet. But have learned some pretty interesting things about the Chamber of Commerce in the early Republic um, as far as Obviously, the first American one was in New York, but also Boston and Charleston had very prominent Chambers Uh of Commerce,
0: major port towns. So, in some ways, not surprising. But, but what are you learning as part of that process?
1: They seem to have been much more political back Mm -hmm. then. Um, I haven't actually haven't looked into if they were incorporated into any state or local government yet. but the Boston Chamber of Commerce apparently was a big supporter of the Boston Tea Party, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. And I learned that Charleston had its own little Boston Tea Party. It did.
0: Yes, it did. You know, and, and uh, yeah, yeah, Charleston. Which I didn't know. There are a few other places you yeah, have at Boston, you know, of course gets all the credit.
1: Right. And so I learned that the Chambers of Commerce there were actually big supporters of those because they were, um, they started and were a collection of merchants interested mm-hmm. in their business and their commerce, and so it kind of makes sense that being upset over tea imports and exports would fall into mm-hmm. their category. <laughs> um, but then also the New York Chamber of Commerce was super instrumental in the J Treaty's popularity, I oh. learned.
0: So in what ways? Explain that for us. Um, well, the extent that, that you know at this point, since the research is preliminary for you.
1: Yeah, so... A lot of people were kind of skeptical when Washington first sent John Jay over to England. um, And the New York Chamber of Commerce met a few days after Jay was sent over and decided it was um, part of their duty as an organization to support Washington's Mm -hmm. policies and his objectives. And so they released a statement in support of the mission and eventually the Jay Treaty. And that apparently... Had a big impact on passing the Jay Treaty in the Senate and the House. Oh, really? Mm
0: -hmm. I guess the Jay Treaty was, you know, was very divisive among some people, especially Jeffersonian Republicans.
1: Yeah,
0: who were like, "Why are we giving the British most favored nation status?" Yeah, when um, France helped us out. Well, exactly, exactly. During during the war, and so, so your sense of it at this point is that the New York Chamber of Commerce was acting as kind of a lobbying firm in a sense, or. At least by expressing support for something that was clearly going to benefit New York merchants, right? Um, particularly those possibly of the Federalist persuasion, um, they you know, they sought, sought to voice their influence then in that process.
1: Influence, and it sounded a lot like patriotism. And patriotism,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Washington's popularity is still pretty high at this point. Yeah. It's, you know, we haven't gotten gotten to second term yet. We're well, we're getting there. We're, you know, <laughs> things are a little rockier for. For GW, but um, and 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 where do you see this project going from here?
1: I think this would actually make a really fascinating article. I don't know if Kevin would be interested in that, mm-hmm. but everything, all the sources I've looked into as far as primary and second or secondary, um, nothing has really tied Chamber of Commerce proper to George Washington. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably because a lot of people are under the same impression that Kevin and I were, that Chambers of Commerce didn't exist until the Mm -hmm. 1900s. And so I think think it would make a good article also because I'm formulating this argument that I'm not sure if it works yet, Mm -hmm. but... I can't get out of my class mode, so I'm still trying to formulate arguments as I read. Um, well, that's
0: good. That's it.
1: <laughs> I guess it's a good thing. No, yeah. That's, yeah, exactly. It's I mean, supposed to be summer, though. Um,
0: but the wheels never stop turning.
1: Right. So, my theory right now is that from what I've read of Washington's correspondence and the secondary sources, it seems like he wanted the federal government to kind of act like a chamber of commerce for hmm. American merchants. Um, so, he believes that one of the keys to a strong, independent American nation was um, an economy regulated by a strong federal government that promoted domestic goods. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what I've seen seems to be, I don't know if it's a stretch or not, but it seems to be as if Washington wanted a stronger federal government to act as a chamber of commerce.
0: That's really interesting. And so, I
1: think if I can word that better and get it mm-hmm. on a piece of paper, I think it'd be something worth reading. So,
0: I mean, to follow up on that on that point, you know, as you say, get it on paper. You know, what is your writing process? I mean, you've written a master's thesis, and so when you have these ideas, you know, you said the arguments keep coming. Um, how how do you begin to put them on paper? What's what's your strategy?
1: My strategy, and I'm not sure if it's efficient, <laughs> um, is always to read. As much as I can first, and take notes first, mm-hmm. and I work well writing from the notes I've taken. So um, whether it be a paper or my master's thesis, I was always working with side-by-side documents okay. with all the notes I'd taken, and then going through and kind of organizing them into relevant subtitles or sections or what they're going to fall into mm-hmm. in the paper, and then going from there.
0: So, it, so. It, on the notes you don't quite have a sense yet of how it's all going to fit together but it's sort of just there and then are you reading through and saying okay I think this works for the argument I'm making in this section or
1: kind of just go through all my primary and secondary sources and take what I think is relevant Um, doesn't have to be in order or organized yet and so I normally organize it by source okay so I'll have the book title or the source title and then whatever I want to include in the page number, so it's easier for me to go back and cite too.
0: So it's kind of like bringing order to chaos after you've, right. after you've created the chaos, now you've got to structure it.
1: But of course, I always run into, when I've finished the paper and I'm finishing writing, I always find four other books I should have looked at. So. I,
0: that's a common thing that happens to all of us, yeah. you know. Uh, <laughs> as long as you catch it before you, you've you submitted it to a drink, you know. Uh, no, that happens all the time, so don't worry about that. Um, so after you um, finished here, well, I mean, I guess we actually even talked about, you know, you're working on these projects here, but what do, you, what do you hope to get out of this experience?
1: Actually, so the last few days, I've really been thinking about alternative career paths in history. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started grad school, teaching was my main objective. I wanted to work with students, and I would research because I had to, Was but I was really interested mm-hmm. in working with people. Over the past few months, as I've said, I've gotten into public history. And so I think working at the library here has been really eye-opening in terms of what I can do with a history PhD, that it's not just museums or mm-hmm. academia, that there's several several other little paths that I can go on.
0: So tell us about some of those. Where, what's, what strikes you as particularly interesting right now?
1: Um, I mean, I guess I really actually like... Doing research for specific talks or papers um, that groups might be interested in, like groups that typically you wouldn't associate with history, mm-hmm. like if a chamber of commerce group visited, this would be a fascinating topic for them right. to look no, into. Right, exactly.
0: It makes the history much more real for them right. and, and what their interests are.
1: But it's also it's kind of the best of both worlds for me, where you know I do the academic research, but then I have to mold it into something that everyone can understand. Mm-hmm. And so I never really saw um, history as being, you know, a quote-unquote desk job. But a lot of people here are doing desk work, but history. Right. So it's, it's interesting to me, and I never thought I would see myself sitting at a desk doing this kind of stuff. But I'm not against it. I well, like a lot it. of it's, you know,
0: sitting at a desk doing it, and then getting up and giving a tour. Or, yeah. or you know, as you say, speaking to a chamber of commerce about, you know. Yeah. Exactly. Um, And so you you are about to begin your Ph.D. at the zoo. Yeah. Um, How are you feeling about that?
1: I feel okay. Um, I mean, doing the master's for two years, I think, prepared me pretty well. Mm -hmm. It's more of getting through my last bit of coursework and then the fear of comping.
0: So explain for us what, what comps are
1: comps are apparently the worst part of the phd (laughs) program um in which (laughs) depending on your school you have three to five different fields that you have to read a list of books for and Mm -hmm. then pass a series of written and oral exams on
0: like hundreds of books
1: hundreds yes
0: usually for each field you know when you said the word (laughs) comps i i secretly shuddered inside
1: yeah (laughs) so that's yeah that's already where i'm at but um Yeah, so first year PhD, um, I don't expect it to be too much different than the master's. Mm -hmm. It'll be the years after that'll get to me, I think.
0: And do you have a sense yet of what you might want to work on post-comps, post-reading every book and then forgetting them all as soon as you're done?
1: Let's hope that doesn't happen. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm exploring different options right now. Um, There's always the option to consider continue on with Lafayette Mm -hmm. there's a few different ways to go with him but again I don't want to expand a great white man narrative um and so that would be something I'd take into consideration um I feel like everything I read though I'm still learning so much and I've been in this this terrible position the past few years where everything I read I just I can't criticize enough because I feel like I'm learning so much from it Mm -hmm. so even reading you know secondary sources on George Washington and commerce and money. These are things that I never thought I'd be interested in, but I am interested in them now after doing so much research.
0: Um, and when you say you, you criticize them, do you mean you, you find them unsatisfying on certain arguments or that, like you wish they had said more about this? or?
1: It's more of I can't make the, the criticisms. Like I just read a book and I absorb the information, oh, you see. maybe because mm-hmm. I didn't know a ton about that subject before. that's what comps are for right so i like i sit in class and i'm like i just really liked this book Mm -hmm. and everyone else has a few criticisms yeah that's harder for me to do because i feel like i just love reading Mm -hmm. what's in the book um so i don't know i'll definitely stick with 19th century american history but at this point it's kind of up in the air
0: yeah well i mean it's always good i think to kind of keep your options open and explore. and some people i think as we've talked about it before off-air, you know, they come in with a topic rare and to go and they know exactly what they want to do, but sometimes, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's a period of exploration where it's kind of fun just to see yeah. what's out there, what sources you might utilize, um, you know, how you can build off experiences like here to do, you know, a different project.
1: Yeah. I wish I was one of those people who came in with a topic, but <laughs> got to work with what you're given. Well, so. and,
0: and you'll, I think you'll find your way and, um, you know, thus far, it seems like you, you know how to do this gig, so I think you'll be in good shape. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, after you uh, go through your own fiery trial um, with the PhD, uh, do you think you might want to stay in a public history kind of setting? or?
1: Yeah, I think after my work with the Kinder Institute as far as their programming for undergraduate students and the public and then working here um, on projects mostly aimed at the public, I think I'm pretty set on staying Mm -hmm. in the more public history side, just because I can work with people like I've always wanted to, but also expand history Mm -hmm. at the same time. So I'm not confined to researching or writing books for years and years, but I'm also not confined to just teaching. I think this is a perfect combination of researching and people. Happy little medium. Yeah.
0: The best of both worlds. Yeah. Well... We wish you the best of luck. We know we've got you for a few more weeks, so we're excited to see uh, what else you can do here at the library, and um, maybe you'll be back here one day as a public history person.
1: That's the dream.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, we'll see what we can do. All right. Well, thank you, Jordan, very much. for listening to Conversations at the Washington Library, a production of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington. Our guest producer and sound engineer this week is Samantha Snyder. Our theme music, entitled Mount Vernon, was composed and performed by Ginger and David Hildebrand. If you'd like to support this podcast, as well as new research into George Washington and his world, please consider becoming a Mount Vernon member. More information is on the webpage for this podcast.
1: Thank you.